Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Cassie Delaney. Sarah still has tonsillitis because we record two episodes a day. And I'm uh, still here and I'm still loving it. <laughs> <laughs> this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. And I realize we didn't say that on the last episode. I think people get it now. They, they, they know what it is, yeah. Our guest today is deputy editor of the journal.ie and the executive producer of Stardust, Christine Bowen. Hi. Welcome to the show. <laughs> welcome. Thanks very much for having me. I am weirdly excited about this. This is a big one. It is a big one. Yeah. What are you going to talk to us about? I'm going to talk about Enid Blyton books. Yeah. And I struggled with this a lot. Mm. Like about when I was thinking about what to do and um, what subject I want to talk about, Enid Blyton was the very first thing that I thought of because it meant so much to me when I was a kid. I mm. loved the book so much. But then at the same time, her stuff is so problematic. And I just made me think, actually, in some ways, it makes her a good topic for discussion because, you know, when so much of the stuff, you know, when I think we're wrestling with that so much today, that idea of trying to figure out how to kind of navigate the world of people being problematic and stuff we love being made by mm. problematic people. Like Enid Blyden is just the perfect example <laughs> of that because you look back at it and you're like, oh, my God, these books I loved as a kid are actually, they're a bit racist and sexist and some people are horrible. But... I don't know, like I was rereading some of them this week and I was like, oh man, I still love them. Like I still yeah. have that yeah. kind of, yeah. you know, that it just grabs you and like the, the storytelling and the world building and yeah, so it, it's weird wrestling with that. Yeah. It is difficult and we've I think we've talked about that or encountered that quite a few times that a lot of the stuff that we loved, especially, in, well, Ian Brighton obviously goes back to the 20s and 30s, but even some of the stuff that we watch and rewatch from the early 90s is problematic because we're viewing it and holding it to the standards of today. Um, and I don't think they were intentionally problematic. Yeah, the, definitely. The same way yeah. that I'm sure in 10 years time, we'll look back on the content we're creating today and be like, oh, wow. You know? <laughs> <laughs> How did that get in? Oh, How no. did that get by? Yeah. Um, so I don't think I don't think it's fair for us to hold things to the same standard, but we can retrospectively acknowledge that there was problems there. There, there was one thing I found really interesting um, when I was looking through Enid Blyton stuff this week, and it was that The Guardian actually brought up um, accusations or, or started kind of critiquing her work for racism in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I always assumed that this was, you know, that we talk about it now and it's in the last decade or so that you look at her work and kind of go, oh, it's a bit dodgy the way she really hates foreigners in all of her books. Yeah. But like in the 60s, she had this book about, um, it was like a black, it, it, even descri- like I'm going to describe it and it's, it's really awful even, it, it's weird finding the language around it now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about a black doll um, and all the other dolls hate the doll because he's black and his owner hates him because he's got an ugly black face and he gets really upset and goes out in the rain and it washes off the the colour of his skin and he comes back and he's a different colour and they all like him and accept him and the Guardian wrote about this and was like so obviously this is a problem and that was in 1966 I think 1967 Um, so you know I think that her work was acknowledged as being not great even back then you know yeah. I think that you know we can apply our lens to it now but at the same time we'll be back there people back then were also jumping up and down and being like you know this isn't great yeah yeah and even just in terms of quality she wasn't very highly regarded like the BBC would like banned her from being adapted yeah, for 20 really years I was surprised at that yeah which and is weird you kind of think of her as like this beloved I think of her person. as like this, yeah. when you think of like so when you think of like the, the England that like Brexiteers talk about now in the news you mm. know I always think of that as being like an Enid Blyton kind of England yeah. where you know, men were men and women were women and everyone was self-reliant and yeah. food was not great. And, you know, I always think of that as being very English. But yeah, the BBC like didn't want, like wouldn't make adaptations of her work. Um, there was this wild thing where school librarians kind of banded together and her work wasn't allowed in a lot of school libraries because mm. it wasn't seen as good enough. It wasn't seen as good enough for kids. Um, and I said this to my husband on the way over here. And he said when he was a kid, he read, he loved the the like the five find outers and the, the secret seven and famous five 
And he said he read all those books and he loved them. And if those books hadn't been available to him as a kid in the, the 80s and the 90s, he just wouldn't have read anything. Yeah. So mm. he was kind of making the point, and I hadn't thought of that, but he was making the point that by taking the option away from kids, like what were they being left with? And there's a real kind of snobbery element there where it's like, if Ina Blyton wasn't good enough for these kids, then then what was? like what Yeah, was yeah. especially reading? given that her, I think her earlier works were published in the kind of early 20s. I'm sure you'll correct my dates. And then Rodal was... 40 37 was his first mm. children's book and then dr zeus was late 40s early 50s as well so you know she's a good 20 30 years ahead of all of these books that we still hold in in really high regard yeah. um which are obviously also fantastic but i wouldn't have said rodal was a particular um you know literary wizard like his stories are great and yeah. stuff, but his language is simple but it's weird how they're in such counterpoint there where she's mm. so yeah. traditional and so old-fashioned um and kind of this real you know af- like you think of post-war britain and you think of all these kind of kind of cool writers like all yeah. these people coming out and I, I kind of think of Roald Dahl being part of that of being kind of you know playing with language and like saying actually kids can really like dark stuff like here's the twits yeah, and it's yeah. terrifying it and is it's really it's scary. so scary I still think there's bits of that I remember being scared as a kid and if I think about it now I'm still like oh man Sorry, the Roald upside Dahl's down The bit, Witches like, is one of the most yeah. terrifying, oh, terrifying books yeah, yeah. of all yeah. time and I, a film I still can't watch mm. where the witches turn into the rats oh uh, <laughs> but then thinking of the two of them as being quite you know, this kind of epitome of Britishness or this kind of these appealing children's authors and they're so different. Mm-hmm. And like there's no, you know, there's no darkness. There's no, there's very little humour in Ian Blyton's books. But there's also no kind of sinister le- sinisterness. Like the sin- anything that's bad it comes from really from like the adults. It's like the yeah. adults are mean or they're, you know, they don't understand the children or they just, they're they're distant. And that's the kind of the tension that's there. And then you have Roald Dahl books and it's like, no, people will kill you and eat you and, yeah. you know, destroy your life. <laughs> and it's so different. Yeah. Um, yeah, because Roald Dahl feels like he's kind of like, it went like Monty Python and the Goons and stuff in yeah, the 60s. Totally. Where his yeah. famous five, first famous five book was 1942, mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, so they're not that far apart, yeah. really, if you think of like how far apart the 90s and now is. Yeah. In terms of like a children's author then and now, there's not a huge amount of difference. But Ian Blyton yeah. and Roald Dahl are like, generationally different yeah, even yeah. though they're probably quite similar in age I would say yeah. well I think Enid Blyton would still have been obviously active in the time that Roald Dahl was coming to prominence mm. as well um, but her earlier works being out on their own as a standalone piece but then following the likes of I think it was um, obviously The Hobbit came out mm. as well in the, in the 30s mm. so that's the comparison but it's it, like also a really creepy book and it, even looking at like Alice in Wonderland which is obviously way before that way before the 30s what is it 18 something mm. um, which is quite creepy and dark in places yeah. and very like psychedelic and um, laden with kind of things that would traumatise a child it's not very child friendly and I think that's why those works have probably lasted better than Enid Blyton's work has yeah. mm. because they've got kind of more contemporary they feel more contemporary yeah, you know yeah. like we're still making Alice in Wonderland films yeah there's, um, there was what one there a couple of years couple ago, years ago. Mm. didn't see it didn't yeah. see it <laughs> it was a little bit too weird I'm <laughs> waiting for like we're gonna get a, they just keep getting darker and darker <laughs> yeah. like we don't need to keep doing this with children's but books or I would absolutely books. watch a dark version of like The Famous Five or a dark version of Mallory Towers um, or, or you know I would watch a version of it where if somebody could take the, the, the that darkness that it kind of is there a little bit, yeah. you know, in her work and just bring and make it contemporary and make it modern. Yeah. I mean, I think somebody could do. I would love to watch something like that. I think that could be done. Yeah, definitely. So tell us about a few of the texts that you particularly enjoyed. And 
the ones I always come back to were St. Clair's and Mallory Towers, which are both set in boarding schools. Um, and the protagonists of both of them are girls who kind of initially don't want to be in the schools. And yet somehow they, they triumph and they end up, you mm. know, playing, doing really well on sports teams or in, in Mallory Towers. The main character ends up, you know, she wants to be a writer and she writes, you know, the school play at the end of, you know, her one of her final years and is lauded as a playwright and just celebrated. And I think they both become head. The, do they both become head girls in Mallory Towers and St. Clair's? They de- she definitely becomes the head girl in. No, she doesn't in Mallory Towers. Never mind that bit. But it's just like the tension is always in like these are girls who've got like difficult personality traits and yeah. yet they manage to to thrive and survive by kind of conforming and by kind of quelling the bits of their, their personality. Mm. Um, and at the time I loved it because when I was a kid, I loved rules and structure, but also kind of a little bit of adventure. And mm-hmm. it felt very much like having things said in a boarding school really makes you feel like that where there is it's an enclosed space it's there's really clear rules but you can break the rules a little bit and that was really appealing as a kid yeah. I just found that really enjoyable but it also really enforces the sense of being a good girl like when I think of them now I think of if I you know if I had a kid would I want them to read these books and I'm not sure that I would because as enjoyable as they are to read there's a real sense of you know follow the rules and everything will be fine Um, you know be a good girl and everything will work out and I think for women, internalizing that message is not great. I think we internalize no. that so much. And then just to be getting it at that age when you're like nine, 10, 11 um, and you're told like actually losing your temper is bad or, you know, talking back to a teacher is bad. Playing pranks is OK, but as long as nobody gets hurt mm-hmm. and all these things where it's like, you know, be a good adult. It's kind of preparing you for being a good adult and being in the adult world. So, yeah, it's really appealing as a kid, not amazing as, as an adult. But the thing I really liked was the way she built the world, like structure, like her world building is so good. Yeah. Mm. You really feel like you're in this school and or you want to be in this school. Um, and like a lot of kids, I really wanted to go to boarding school after reading these books. And yeah. I was going to my like kind of crappy primary school every day and I was like, oh, damn it, where's our lacrosse team? Or, you know, we want to do a play and, you know, we're just stuck doing basketball and PE. And it was just, it felt glamorous. Like it felt kind of exciting and, and glamorous like for a kid growing up in, in Dublin. It just, yeah. I don't know. So yeah, it was really, really appealing. And you don't realise, like when we were talking there about you know, these things being set so long ago, when you're a kid, you know that they're old, but you don't know how old that they are. I remember, yeah. like, I never knew that they were in, like, the 1940s or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was kind of shocked. I was like, what? This is so, it feels so much older. It was, like, they used to show, like, the Brady Bunch on The Den on RTE2, and I knew it was in the past, but I never knew how old it was when I was a kid. And I was like, this is the 70s? What? Like, this is, like, ancient history. This is crazy. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of the same thing with the, the you know, a lot of the Enid Blyton books, you find out how old it is and you're like, mm. they've secretly be, been feeding me ancient history and I didn't even realise. Or oh, for me, that was and the then, Hardy Boys. It was like, oh, they're all set in the 30s and 40s. It's like, so weird. <laughs> you're imagining them in like, like 80s, like yeah, yeah, bomber yeah. jackets and, and kind stuff. Of big hair, like yeah, yeah. moose and stuff and like, you know, kind of finger guns. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Actually, when I was like looking around for, you know, reading up on Ina Blyton this week and there was one stage where she was accused of not writing her own books and she, you know, fought back yeah. and there was like a legal case and she was like, no, I do write my own books. But I found out that the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew weren't written by just one person. Mm. There was like a factory that created them. Well, not a factory. factory in, yeah, in some research, there was a couple of popular titles of children's books that I realised were written by kind of um, multiple writers. Isn't it wild? Yeah. yeah. I kind yeah. of felt a little bit betrayed with the Nancy Drew ones in particular. Yeah. yeah. It's like, really? Like, there's and no Sweet Valley High as well. Really? If you... Shout out to Caroline O'Donoghue's Sentimental Garbage podcast. Um, yeah, they, she had, she apparently, this is what I learned from Sentimental Garbage last week. She would, Francine Pascal would just send weird scribbled notes to ghostwriters <laughs> with like maybe 
Elizabeth gets a car kind of thing <laughs> and they would write a story based on that flesh this out to yeah, a yeah. car yeah. and <laughs> Babysitter's Club as well a lot of those were ghost no yeah, really yeah. oh stop yeah but I mm. suppose a lot of these titles and a lot of these they became brands and they became kind of franchises yeah. of themselves so like so of course like there 50 were like Babysitter's Club books yeah but so Edith Blyton wrote oh, according like to Wikipedia 726 yeah. books yeah so I mean Edith Blyton at one stage her Wikipedia page says that she was you know, churning out 50 books a year. So I mean, the quality control was probably slipping a little yeah, bit. Well, yeah, you can forgive someone for thinking that there was more than one person behind a book a week Absolutely. for an entire yeah. year. Which is why you can remember every bit of The Witches, but you can just remember the concept of the famous five. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Roldal did, like, 20 books, and each of them was super considered, whereas Edith Blyton did 726 Close. of yeah, them. Yeah. Like the James Patterson of children's literature. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 She yeah. was like the Riverdale of the third. <laughs> 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 it just stops making sense after a yeah. while. She apparently she accidentally plagiarized herself a lot. I can imagine just, that. Yeah. As in like a smuggler, like yeah, because she just five go to smugglers because she spent all day writing every day and never experienced anything new after about you know nineteen thirty seven. Mm. So she would just have what she had already happened to her. So yeah, yeah. Um, and she and it, it's her process is described as writing from a kind of um, unconscious place where she would just sit down at a, at a typewriter or whatever and, and write. And it would just flow out of her. So I don't think there was, I think it was, you know, it's very rare that you see someone sitting down without having a plot outline or a skeleton of a, mm. yeah. of a works complete, but just to sit down and write from start to finish, which is if she was churning out that many books is what she must have been doing. I mean, it, yeah, like it worked for her, but at the yeah. same time, it does explain a lot of the kind of the inconsistencies or just the, yeah, the repetitiveness of, mm. of the books. Like, like you say, even with the, the school's books or I guess with the Secret Seven, Famous Five, Five Vine Letters, there's so many times you're like, wait, really? Like another smuggler? Or they find yeah. kidnappers again? <laughs> yeah. Like there's yeah. one Famous Five book where um, a scientist comes to stay with Uncle Quentin and I think it was that he discovered a cure for boldness and that's the one I always remember because it was so strange. I was like, wait, what? How does this, like the last book was about smugglers. Where does this come <laughs> yeah. from? And it felt so different and it feels like maybe that was a day she woke up and you know, because something came to her that was completely different. Saw an ad different. for boldness in the papers. Yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe she was like, let's try and mix this up, kids. Let's see yeah. what else we can do. We found another new cave on the island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's another smuggler here as well. I can't believe it. Yeah. So many things being smuggled. Mm. It's a real problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a real issue to deal yeah. with. <laughs> she, talk about George a little bit from The Famous Five because George is both... Oh, my love. I love her so much. Like non-binary icon, but also mm. she was kind of shitty towards George and was like, don't be like this, George, yeah. in the books at the same time. Yeah. Which is... For the 40s. There's one great yeah. bit where Dick in The Famous Five tells George, uh, you need to stop thinking you're as good as a boy. I always remember that line. Yeah. It's like, wow. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Like, honestly, I don't think that Enid Blyton was creating this amazing non-binary character. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely I mean, not, yeah. like, it's kind of nice to imagine that it was her kind of, her little bit of being subversive. But just from what we know of her and from all mm-hmm. her other books, this wasn't subversive. This was more of a kind of, you know, George is trying to be something and actually she should know her place. Yeah. And she should stop, like, be a tomboy and that's fine. But really, she's not never going to be as good as a boy. Mm. Um, and I think there's a really weird kind of contrast there because when Enid Blyton writes books that are just about girls, so like the books in schools, the girls are amazing. Like they're, they're feisty and they're kind of charismatic mm. and they take on leadership roles and they, they run the school essentially. And, you know, it's really cool. But as mm. soon as the male characters are introduced, then like all the girls are relegated to sidekicks or like to annoying pests or to people who are just kind of, you know, twist their ankle or faint at bad moments and it's 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 really crappy mm. it's like by, by contrasting the two of them it like the girl characters always lose out so George kind of felt like she's th- there's ca- a couple of characters who are a little bit like George in some of the series where mm. like the twins in, in St. Clair's where they're like a bit rebellious but 
George is the only one where like her femininity is really discussed and you mm-hmm. know having short hair and just and kind of you know not wanting to be feminine and it's it feels radical like to have that character there even mm. if Enid Blyton didn't intend her to be especially compared to Anne who is oh, like basically Anne. described like ironing on an island for them sometimes <laughs> you know <laughs> she always manages to like create food out of nowhere yeah, yeah. and she's like 10 I think oh she's youngest isn't it? yeah, yeah she's, she's yeah, they're, like, what, they're 13, 12, 11, 10 yeah and they? so and yeah, Anne yeah. is like the baby but she always yeah. manages to like clean up everything and bring the food with them and have you know look after them and do all these things I'm like what kind of like 10 year old is doing this stuff mm. and also what kind of message is it sending that you know, because Anne is very much presented as the ideal. Like, oh, I yeah, remember reading yeah. it and being like, damn it, I'm never going to be like that. And it was really a sense of Anne is, you know, she's kind of weak, but as a character, but she's strong because she does all the cleaning and minds everybody. Mm. And like, I loved George so much. Like she was just so feisty and, you know, she had an island, which was yeah. incredibly <laughs> impressive when you're like growing up in a housing estate and going, yeah. OK, I just... Once I get my own island, everything yeah. will be OK. It'll be amazing. We kind of had, not like me purse, but in our estate, there was kind of, a, like a mountain island in the middle of the estate it was amazing like so there were there were like it was like where there should be a street it was like the, the estate was like six horizontal streets and two vertical streets but where like the third street should be that space was just this big hill with like a wood and like two big rocks you climb on and trails all around it that everybody would just play army on I'm so, so it's kind of, of like a little Kieran Island just That's in the middle cool, of this yeah. housing estate and what, what stuff did you just play on it? army or you would just suddenly just hang out in the rock and just kind of hang off the rock <laughs> and just kind of enjoy the experience of hanging from something that's terrifying but yeah okay. <laughs> but you get like I'm I am I'm a large man but I am extremely nimble I don't fall over really at all ever <laughs> and it's because of growing up like on this hill with all and stuff climbing all over the place that's some arm strength like, yeah that's amazing. <laughs> very impressive yeah god we had nothing like that that's so good it's gone now and they've, they've leveled it is it is like it 10 houses? years it's houses now oh, yeah of course which is a shame. Shout out to Ireland and everything. Yeah, shout out to Yeah, I was going to say, we, yeah. had, yeah. we had similar kind of um, hills and dens and fallen trees mm. and it's now known as the M50. So <laughs> that was so beautiful. Yeah. So many yeah. children yeah. playing on the yeah. M50 every yeah. day. Um, Great place to be. But it's kind of funny that you remember the outdoorsy stuff when you were a kid. You know, I Absolutely, remember that yeah. a huge amount. And just being so jealous of, you know, like the famous five being able to row a boat and go out and do all this stuff. Yeah, and also adults like, wouldn't go up on the hill. Yeah. So it was totally... So it's your own space. It was totally the kid's yeah, space, yeah. yeah. Oh, you really feel that in like in her books where it's like kids kind of control everything. Like adults mm. are always like... The, they're like this kind of malign presence where they don't do anything good. They're just... Any adults that are there are generally either stupid or bumbling or, you know, they don't care about the children or whatever mm. it is. But like the kids have like their own... Their agency... And that was really freeing. Like as mm-hmm. a kid, I remember telling my mom and my dad that I was going to take over part of the downstairs. And I was going to live there and no one was allowed to like come near me because it was my apartment. And like, you know, there was like I had six sisters and my parents and we were in like a semi-detached house and they were like, no, <laughs> like that is absolutely not happening. I was like, no, I'm like 11. I deserve my own space. And but part of it is that kind of sense that, you know, from these these books and other ones that kids kind of can do what they want to do or can, yeah. you know, it's acceptable or it's not outlandish that children would investigate a crime because the police yeah. are failing to do it. Yeah. You know, I remember just longing to solve a crime, like just really wanting something to happen. And I think that's something that everyone was impacted by because regardless of whether you read The Famous Five, you had Scooby-Doo growing up and mm-hmm. Harriet the Spy and like it was the kind of that was one theme that was reiterated across children's literature and children's programming all the time yeah. was and even later Spy Kids and stuff. It was yeah. children solving crimes. It yeah. was not featured crime. in my life <laughs> yeah, nearly yeah. as much as I would have expected mm. based on the early literature and TV programs I was exposed yeah. to. Yeah, it's like she cannot let kids be as capable as you believe yourself to be secretly. 
absolutely yeah if you just yeah. had the chance to do it you could have yeah. totally yeah oh yeah like because she presents it as a like you know there's been a burglary and the police didn't see that you know the grass had been trampled but the kids saw it because they were they're canny and they're smart and he's like that'll be me yeah I'm yeah. gonna solve a crime and it never happened and like so much of it was so because there's the aspirational side of it in terms of having you know the like the secret seven so we would set up clubs when we were kids like and they always kind of faded out and we had to start a new one and have a password and a secret knock to get into the shed or you know all these kind of things yeah. that but the whole and that was fun but the whole point was that we wanted to be able to solve a crime or you know to do some good and <laughs> it's really hard <laughs> like when you're a kid um so i think yeah it was another reason why her books were like both really realistic but not realistic at all yeah yeah just kind of relatable and that like you wanted to you really wanted to be in very high danger zones but solving crimes and having yeah. fun So we, so we talked about Mallory Towers, but there was another school one as well, which was yeah, St. Clair's. Clair's. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've, we, we talked to Louise O'Neill about the Magic Faraway Tree, and we talked a little bit about those, but the impression I got was that you were either one or the other. But you were both? I was both. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As part of my whole kind of wanted to be a good girl, like a good yeah. all-rounder girl. Who <laughs> you just wanted as many examples things. as you could get. Honestly, I was like, I'm just looking up to these girls because they're all amazing. Mm. Um, but the, yeah, I, yeah, I would say... It, because a lot of the characters are quite thinly drawn or quite thinly sketched. And so you've kind of generally as a rule, you've got like the good girls who are like our protagonists who are going to go on and lead sports teams and do cool things and, you know, rescue other girls when they do bad things. But then you've got all the other characters who are usually they'll have like one big character flaw, which is their defining trait. So if somebody mm. has like a bad temper or if they're secretly poor and they lie about it or if they if they're chubby, like this is a really big thing about like if characters like are, are fat or chubby mm. she's really like well that's their defining trait and I will talk mm. about them in this way isn't one of the five find outers just called fatty fatty yeah it's it's pretty great like his yeah. initials are F Frederick Algernon Trotter I think okay. so his initials are F-A-T so they're all like oh you're just fatty but you're fat too so lol and yeah. like it's it's actually it's funny it's one of the things that we ha that hasn't kind of been that discussion around her portrayal of like body image and mm. stuff yeah. in that way that I think is actually rereading it it's really interesting because she's so bad about the, the physical stuff like any of the girls in the book who might be pretty they're usually vain so it isn't you can't just be pretty it's like mm. there's one of the characters who has to brush her hair a hundred times a night because she told her mom she would and all the other girls slag her about it and they're like oh you're so you're not even that pretty uh. but they don't say that because yeah. it's England <laughs> in the 1940s yeah. but that's roughly kind of what they mm. say um, and like a lot of them are just it's just feels quite mean, you know, like everyone yeah. is just defined by like their worst character trait rather than really by their best. Like even even the main characters, they've got flaws and they're it's, you know, like say the the sidekick to the main character in Mallory Towers. She is I think she's very she becomes, she's very jealous. Her mom has a has a baby and she's really jealous of mm -hmm. the baby. And so that's kind of why throughout the entire like six or seven books, it's always like, oh, well, Sally, you know, she's a jealous girl, so she can never be that great a character, or that great a person mm -hmm. because she's so flawed. And it's kind of sad reading it in some ways because when you read even things like compared to say something like Harry Potter where people are flawed but that's not their defining trait it's like they're just human and then in Mallory Towers and St. Clair's it's more like oh no you know she's jealous so mm, screw her mm. like she's a horrible person and always will be um, yeah it's kind of it's it's weird reading it like they're kind mm. of it's quite mean spirited yeah I mean that's probably why they weren't big fans of it as yeah. adults Um they have updated a good bit of it, though. Yeah. Or they did, but then they reversed a lot of it. Yeah. They? So they had to update some of it in the 80s to take out, like, 
you know, the racism was a big thing. Yeah. So like taking out the gollywogs and replacing yeah. them with <coughs> goblins. Obviously not in the school's books. That was in like, say, Naughty and some yeah. of the other kids' books. Um, and so they replaced that, which makes total sense because the books still sell a lot today. Yeah. But obviously they wouldn't if they had the same copy that was there yeah. in them in the 30s and 40s and then like you're saying they tried to replace them um update them in i think it was 2006 or 2010 like recently yeah enough. recently enough yeah, yeah and changing things like say whatever mother and father to mom and dad or, or not mom mom and dad probably yeah and it's like bathing to swimming and stuff like that which sounds like it made sense or like yeah. tunics to school uniforms yeah but then they said that they i think it was hatchet actually reversed the decision and said mm. no it's not really working so and I don't really understand why that didn't work because that was the one thing I would always snag on as a kid. I never quite understood what a tunic was or yeah. what bathing was compared to swimming or how <laughs> that works. And all these things that you don't fully... Or elevenses where, you know, even the food that they would eat, all these mm. things where you were mm. just like, wait, what? And it takes you out of them. So I don't know. I kind of like the idea of people still reading the books now, but and I suppose seeing them as period pieces, like seeing them as things that are kind of old fashioned and being like, oh yeah, they wore tunics back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it kind of is the thing that's probably preventing them from being seen as more modern or from, you know, from being kind of, I don't know, more loved, I guess, mm-hmm. like because they're so rooted and so dated. Yeah, but I, mean, I loved the famous five. Yeah, I, like it, it was actually ironically it was from our school library where, where I got them. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you guys escaped the van. Yeah, they had like all 21 of them. So literally I'd get one a week and read it and bring it back at the next one for like all of second second class. But I was obsessed with them. It's really compelling. Like, yeah. I mean, that's the one thing, like, it really sucks you in. Cause, especially because yeah. they're just that little bit older than you as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bit glamorous. Helps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Julian was like, was he 12? I think, 13? was it 10 to 13? 10 it, to 13, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it definitely felt like, oh, this guy knows his stuff. Yeah, I did feel a little bit cheated when I read the first one and realised that one of the five was a dog. Yeah. I felt like <laughs> a bit of a cheat. Hey, Timmy was a valuable member of the he, team. He ended I up mean, being, yeah. He ended up being. Yeah, and actually The Secret Seven was too many people for me. I couldn't read The Secret Seven. Yeah. Which is too many characters to keep track of. I think a lot of them were just kind of thrown in to make it seven. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> like the leader and the leader's sister, who was amazing, uh, mm. Janet or Pam, I think. And then a couple of other characters who were good. And then like characters five, six and seven kind of didn't really do anything. They were just, yeah. they were like, they're friends. We just made them part of the group. So we have seven. But I mean, that's realistic. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, like any friend group, there's always the like the random ones you just get yeah. put in. But yeah, I think the five were much more sketched out. Like they just, they mm. felt like actual people. Except for Dick, who <laughs> was just kind of the, like the mini Julian. Like, I don't yeah. think Dick really, he was he kind was, of a little bit brave, but... Was he a bit more argumentative, maybe? Mm, yeah, a little bit Julie was like the peacemaker. Yeah. yeah, 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 but he wasn't, I don't know, he wasn't like strong enough to be, he wasn't a leader, because obviously mm. you don't need Julian, um, but he just kind of felt like Julian's sidekick. I yeah. think that would be a female character, like, in a lot of, you know, Blyton's books, like that role would be played by a female character, mm. but she obviously couldn't have three girls and one boy, because that would have been insane. Yeah. <laughs> not in the need of Blyton, not in her watch. <laughs> <laughs> so um, did reading the books inform kind of your growing up your career choices and what you wanted to do were you that gripped by them that you were like I want to write books I want to write adventures that's a really good question yeah it kind of did which is kind of grim looking back on it because they're so badly written yeah so now I'm like <laughs> wow was my bar that low I was just like I just this is the first thing I can jump onto um yeah I kind of I really just because a lot of the times it's particularly in, so in Mallory Towers the main character there wants to be a writer yeah and I guess that was the first female character I really loved and I was like, oh, I want to be a writer. OK. And I was reading, like, say, Little Women at the time. And Joe wants to be a writer. And it just felt like someone was just ticking a box and just or just something was clicking in my head. And I just thought, this is me. Like, this is like I identify with these characters so much. And so obviously you see, like, the good things that they're doing, too. But as in, like, they're brave and they're, you know, writing plays at school or whatever and doing all these cool things. But just it was the writing that was the thing that I really, really identified with them with. And yeah. it just made me feel like. 
oh yeah, I will definitely, I, this is doable, I can do this, you know, because when you're, I don't know, I was really, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, except for I knew I wanted to write something. That was the only thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, shout out to the books for providing that kind of inspiration to kids as well to mm. make you think that you can do kind of anything because I definitely <coughs> got that from reading them. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Mm. Just thinking there when you were saying that, I've, there's like a load of girl characters in children's books who want to be writers. Yeah. yeah Not yeah. many boys. But I it's think weird, that, um, I think that f- even in, in programs, like I think the female writers project a little bit of themselves onto the main character. I think yeah. that's yeah. why you see so many female writers that definitely feels like or like Daryl and Mallory Towers yeah, yeah, yeah because that's it you're a writer and you kind of, you write what you know or what you want yeah, to see exactly. reflected as well and it's very easy for writers to and write also giving making a character a writer gives them the potential to be quite reflective because it's yeah. a natural mm. trait that goes along with being an author or a writer so it helps I suppose the story arc and develop the story a little bit because they can sit down and write and reflect in their diary and actually give the reader an update of the plot yeah yeah that's a nice way of putting it I think and I think it explains probably why there's so many female characters you write but then why aren't the male ones reflected why aren't they yeah. there because mm. um, it is very much a thing that you it see is isn't it it's kind of a, yeah. it's yeah. never actually occurred to me yeah. e- even with Enid Blyton like she was her head girl in her school she yeah. went to boarding school and the same with like Jacqueline Wilson books she was in the foster care system mm, the majority 90% of her characters are in the foster care system you always see little snippets mm. of I think female writers probably do it a little bit more than male writers yeah in my experience yeah even like in girls where like Hannah is a writer yeah and like Lena Dunham I would kind of think of her as a writer rather than like a tv Medium, show creator yeah, yeah. or anything yeah. or, creator or anything yeah. like that and Rory like, Gilmore obviously yeah of course Rory Gilmore, yeah. 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 yeah Sabrina the, wanting to be a journalist and going to study journalism in college yeah which was kind of a, a twist I did not yeah. see that coming with Sabrina with Rory Gilmore I just yeah. Wish she had been more talented <laughs> or a better journalist. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. come on, do us proud. Especially when Sabrina went to all that effort, effort of learning what mitosis was and then not to be a scientist afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Seems like a shame. Um, I know. She, yeah. like, she worked so hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie Bradshaw, obviously, yeah. the richest columnist in all the oh, world. Yeah, yeah. Journalist being notoriously super well paid. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. There's one episode where she's like, oh, yeah, I get like $4 a word. And I was like, at Vogue, was it $10 a word or $4 a word? But either way, I, was, I remember doing the maths on that and being like, what? How? How How does that work? That is insane. Yeah. yeah it's. I guess you kind of apply the glam. You try to, like, people try to make writing seem glamorous. And like, it's really not glamorous. Really? Yeah. You know? It just, I think the idea of it is more glamorous than the reality of it. Yeah, but I suppose as a writer or an author, creating a workspace outside of writing for a character would be quite difficult like you wouldn't That's have true. the first notion of like if I was writing a character who was a scientist I'd be like today I am in the lab <laughs> <laughs> I am wearing a lab coat <laughs> I have some jars like it'd be so difficult the research goes well today yes <laughs> I write it in my book with the lines that go vertically <laughs> like yeah it'd be so so difficult yeah. so it has to be it has to at the very least be something I think in the humanities if you're creating believable characters and obviously mm. the projecting writers into the story is that inquisitive reflective character trait but that's interesting so when well. you say inquisitive and reflective because it's kind of like an introvert extrovert dynamic yeah if yeah. someone's a writer they obviously have to spend a good bit of time probably on their own like you know or at least kind of with their head and down writing yeah um but then also you're writing they're probably writing about people and they need to be out there in the world so i always think like with writers i just in our newsroom i always think there's a real kind of um split between people being like introverts and extroverts as in a lot of people wouldn't fall neatly into either category. Yeah. And I think it's kind of reductive anyway to say that people are, you know, one or the other because very 
few people probably are totally just one or the other. But like with writers, I think there's a real sense of like the two kind of living in one person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because, you know, you're using your brain to get these words out on the page, um, which feels quite, you know, kind of in, insular, I guess. Um, but at the same time, you're observing the world and, you know, you're out in the world and trying to get it onto your page. So, yeah, I just think there's that tension there. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. And I suppose if you compare it then and contrast it, the works of Rodal or even um, J.R. Tolkien and stuff at the time, like n- their characters are, I suppose they write fiction more fictitiously. Like their characters yeah. aren't even necessarily mm-hmm. people with jobs. They're the twits and the witches <coughs> and, yeah. you know, hobbits yeah. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a totally different style of writing and totally different world. Yeah, there's something very confined or rigid or restrictive about a lot of Enid Blyton's books. You yeah. know, they're so... You know, like the dads are kind of absent or policemen or scientists or writer. Like everything is very formulaic and yeah. like, there's no sprinkle of magic. Like there's no uh, and I don't mean literal magic, but I just mean like there's no kind of like element of fantasy or fun or I don't know. You know, there's no kind of imagination really yeah. there, which is fine. I mean, not everything has to be wild mm. and imaginative, but there's just so little. It's kind, kind of, of imaginative. I- imagination, but that it exists in the constraints of the world that we already know. Yeah, like there's not it. exactly as yeah. in like oh, you know, these kids go on a summer holiday to visit their aunt and uncle every year, but also there's smugglers nearby and they get to solve that. And so, you know, it's still their little world, but a little bit of, yeah. But because she wrote 726 books, for every one of those is also naughty. (laughs) (laughs) Or or the mouse who becomes a maid for someone. But not naughty, they were designed by like a Dutch artist, I think, and she just wrote the stories based on them. So again, they're not her characters. Because you think of, like, when you think of Naughty, you think of the visuals before you think Mm. of anything, you know, and far more so than with any of the the other work that she's done. Yeah. um, Which is really interesting because you don't really think of her as being someone who whose work kind of translated to like the screen really. Mm. They, obviously there was the famous five TV show and um, some other attempts with her other shows. I'm always surprised that there wasn't like a big series with Mallory Towers in particular, but Naughty kind of somehow was the breakthrough like that, that mm. managed to be on TV. And I, you know, it's kind of wild. I guess because yeah. you can make toys and stuff. Apparently yeah, she, had a, she made a lot of so jigsaws. Visual, like that lens itself. Yeah, she had big jigsaw yeah. lines on and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there was the character already existed, you know, mm. it's the same with like the Dr. Seuss books. It's just the characters lend themselves to be visually represented so much. And because they're so beautifully illustrated mm. as well. Mm. You know, it's but there's also like an inherently capitalist thing there where it's like, oh, this is sellable. Yeah. You know, yeah in a way that like course. the other books weren't. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, let's like make money off this, you know, as if like making writing 750 books isn't enough already. It was it, like it, there is a real sense of it was like a little empire, like a publishing. Like, mm-hmm. the, like the woman was like a powerhouse. Like she did write so many books and produce so much. And yeah, the quality slipped. But, you know, it was still kind of a model in some ways for yeah, like, sp- success for a woman back in those yeah, days. Yeah. But even I think the. Um, it's media for for consumers, you know. It's very uh, commercial media. When there was wasn't as heavily, you know, TV programming. There wasn't Netflix. There wasn't, you know, programs created just to be commercial. So yeah. it probably they probably had the same mindset as we have today with streaming services and mm. networks and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, how do we get this out here yeah, in different yeah. ways to more people? Yeah, yeah. One thing I found really weird was. Um, how far she fell from like when she died to the 90s because I was reading her entire like all of her intellectual property besides Naughty was sold for 14 million in the 90s someone bought like all of it for 14 million pounds who, who bought it? Uh, it was Trocadero and they set up Ina Blyton Limited and then it was sold Hachette when then but like it seems 
like something Disney would pay like a billion for now. Yeah, it is. You know? Yeah. It, it is an unusually small amount of money it for is, isn't everything it? that I, was there. But yeah. I kind of wonder if like if I if you talked about Ian Blyton to uh, say like a, a, a 10 or 11 year old kid today, mm. would they be like, what? What are you talking like? What yeah. is it like? Would they, first of all, would they have the recognition? Like, would they know mm. who she is? Because um, like a lot of the books are still sold, you know, now. Well, a, a lot of books are still sold of hers like every year. But at the same time, not nearly as many as say like, you know, when we were kids like in the 80s, like or 90s. Yeah. Mm. And so there's that. But then also like have they re- like is it does she has does she have that kind of lasting brand? Like and I'm not it's sure that she know. does. Because like in my local bookshop, there is a big kids section and there is a sizable lead in Blighton section, mm-hmm. but it is most it's pretty much all famous five and naughty. And it's about the same size as the David Volume section, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so <been> usurped. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to know how if they're just there as like inertia yeah. or if they're actually selling. Parents yeah. nostalgia. Parents yeah, yeah. being like, okay, I liked this. My kids might like this. Mm. Um, yeah, I kind of, I don't know. Like, would you let if you had kids, would you let your kids read or would not let your kids? That sounds like they're they're banned or something or too subversive. I think would be, you want them to read the books? Yeah, it's something you'd probably read with them and have to have discussion points around. Yeah. you know. Yeah. As in, like, it's not great to be slagging off this girl because she's yeah, fat. Or yeah, it's not yeah, great yeah. to and I probably think, mocking working class yeah, people. Yeah, I think yeah. they're probably contemporary texts that will, I think, set children up better for school life and community building and all that kind of stuff. Right, so, like, in moderation. like anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Whereas as opposed to, like, an all in a blighton diet like we had. <laughs> See, I think, and I think that's the problem. I think yeah. reading so many of the books, like, I kind of wish I'd read other a lot of other stuff as mm. well because I love them so much. Um, but it really made me kind of live like I really expect when I went to secondary school, I was really like expected to be completely different based on my reading of Mallory Towers and St. Clair's. Like yeah. I really thought it was going to be much more kind of clearly defined roles for everybody yeah. in a lot of mm. ways. Like because you read the books, and you're like, OK, so one person is the clear leader. One person's her sidekick. One's the funny person. One girl will be good at drawing. One girl will love horses. And it's not that I thought that that was the exact roles that everyone was going to fall into. Mm. But I thought that everyone would have a role. And obviously life is much more not like that like people change and grow and also they're not just defined by one personality trait again yeah um but like yeah it really set my expectations for the especially world especially because there's like a complete absence of like irish teenager stories yeah well yeah. that's we it as well because we had like yeah. so we had like american high school sitcoms and yeah. ina blighton books yeah and then and irish kinda... children dying in the famine yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't ever mock under the hawthorn tree it was so good <laughs> yeah. but even that was like you kind of yeah. class one to like the marita Conlon mckenna books because you're like oh cool irish people yeah um because I, I always knew, obviously, you're reading like Ina Blyton books and you know they're English, but I don't think, like, I didn't realize how posh they were until like years mm. later. And I was like, oh, oh, they're all rich. Yeah. And, like, I did not realize if I was in this book, I would be like, I don't know, like the working class neighbor who people. Yeah, it's hard to yeah. place yourself in the world. Exactly. Yeah. It's defined in ways that's different from our own communities. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's what's, I suppose, a little, not problematic, but what earlier texts did, and especially is literature that's geared towards children is that the characters were created as vehicles to which to advance the plot yeah. more than having actual character development and being uh, personality driven content in a way that we kind of might have now or we see a little bit more of yeah like I think Ina Blyton especially was like really interested in like moral instruction yeah so really, she, was writing, yeah, she yeah. was writing the characters for kids to like learn from rather than to see themselves in and it really yeah. feels like that it yeah. really feels like you know the, the bad people are always caught out. Like if mm. somebody is stealing or something, they'll always be found out. Yeah. Um, and even there's a couple of times where people are stealing 
because they're poor and they, and they need the money but it's still like no you should not steal that is terrible mm. and you really take this message of like okay cool stealing is bad grand yeah, that's yeah. my list of you know how to see the world um but it, it re- i think that like that's part of the reason again why it dates because it reads like that it reads like an adult telling you how to be good and how to be mm. in the world yeah and you're a bit like mm, really like is this what it's like <laughs> but then at the <laughs> same time do you present children with like the complexity of characters that there are good people doing bad things or bad people but doing Harry Potter good does things. that so well yeah yeah and i think like i guess maybe you had to have Enid Blyton to get to the situation where we can have kids stories now that are nuanced and that yeah. do have like light and shade in them um maybe we wouldn't have like a lot of the kids books that we have now True, if we yeah. didn't have her because she's like kind of the <laughs> kind of a okay you don't want to be that like like yeah. light and dark, or you don't want everything to be like that mm. black and white and um, you want it to be more nuanced um because yeah i do think you need to have that like you do yeah. want that and Jackie yeah, Rowling did explicitly she did explicitly like uh put Harry Potter against Famous Five. She was like, here's something Famous Five does that we're not going to do. Yeah. So yeah. She's like, Harry Potter characters will hit puberty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you know? what is the book <laughs> Famous Five? Yeah. Is it um, <laughs> the Goblet of Fire where Harry's just a moany little shit throughout yeah. the entire book. Yeah. When the hormones kick in, he's yeah, like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything's shit. Yeah, and you still you still love them and understand them a little bit more. Uh, de- but you definitely there. do because you kind of go, oh man, I hate it. That age was so tough mm. and yeah. I get what he's going through and it's not like, Okay, I don't. <laughs> I identify with Harry Potter struggles. I, I meant as a human rather than like the yeah, yeah. magic side of things. Um, but you don't get that tension at all in the famous wife. Mm. They're stuck in that, or in a lot of the books, they're stuck in that limbo of like forever childishness. Um, yeah, because there's no like, like dating or relationships no. or anything anywhere. It's you know, yeah. or even any sense of longing, yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, or like flirting. There's one bit in um, the the Secret Seven. Where I think one of the boys thinks that the main guy's sister is really capable and smart and he wishes his sister could be like that. And yeah. that's the closest you get to like any kind of sexual tension or any kind of, you know, desire in the Oh, book. The Secret Seven would have been a horror show once they hit puberty. Oh, imagine. <laughs> oh my God, seven kids in a shed. Because the Famous Five draw related, but Secret Seven? Oh man, no. that would have just been a nightmare. Yeah. Who knows what that would have yeah. spawned. Just a lot of unhappy couples, I guess. Yeah. Grim. Not a bad poetry. I would also yeah. <laughs> so much angsty music. Yeah. Oh, can we talk for just? I just want to mention this. Ian Blyton's very first book was a book of poetry called Child Whispers. Oh dear, which is terrifying. Yeah, yeah, that is horrible. I, hate I can't it. believe Ian Blyton misread <laughs> things to do with children. It's so yeah. weird. I'm not never going to read Child Whispers. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, have I, to say. I think I missed that one. Yeah, yeah 1922. Oh, yeah, very so, very early on. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's kind of interesting. She started it, like she obviously loved. Poet. like she loved writing so much mm. and then yeah. just wasn't amazing at it but did it like and yeah. I kind of admire that like I think that's ballsy you know mm. that she yeah. just did so much of it, it though so much I, of I it across yeah. so many genres as well like yeah. the children's book the poetry the literary magazines she like, like would rewrite historical fiction like Greek retounds of Greek stories and stuff as well she like, had like volumes and volumes of that like who do we have nowadays who would do that much writing like there's definitely contemporary um, figures there like, probably um, mm. but like somebody who just is that prolific and just wants their work out in the world like it's so ambitious as well yeah, you know yeah. just so kind of I can do this I'm gonna mm. do this like it's yeah, yeah. but mean, if someone was releasing a book a week this in this age <laughs> we'd be like ghostwriters ahoy like there is we're like, not believing that for yeah, a second yeah like, show us your work I don't believe yeah, this yeah mm. um yeah, like she wrote a, a magazine, Ian Blyton magazine. Every two weeks, she wrote the entire thing herself for six years. I think, like, originally, it wasn't, like, th- they ended up, like, putting her name in the title of the magazine. Just they were just like, yeah, they were just like, <laughs> okay, look, Enid, you know, it's fine. We know you're doing the whole thing. We yeah. get it. Um, yeah, which is, again, a power move. Like, I yeah. feel like, obviously, you know, I wouldn't describe her as a great feminist or anything, but, like, a lot of the things she did were quite ballsy and like, mm. kind of ahead of, 
their time as well you know yeah. like she got sick of her first husband and quietly divorced him got a second husband he used to play tennis naked like just did her own thing so much like she mm. just kind of didn't seem to really care about like conventions of the day and yet so many of them were reflected in her work like yeah. they were so yeah. traditional like it's there's a real contrast like with her like, I don't get the impression she was particularly interested in adults no at she all. didn't seem to be yeah. but so I don't think she liked kids though either so her, her daughter said she was interested in like her children in children as readers but not as people mm. but she wants so she wants to like write for children not be anywhere near them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I know you're my audience but yeah. like you know don't come too close yeah um, yeah which is kind of you kind of I kind of understand that like as a writer she mightn't want to be she's writing about a topic as like an idealized idealized version mm. of it rather than what kids are actually like because I always wonder like were kids like that in England in like the mm. 1940s and 50s? But there is a definite sense, sh- sense that she was speaking to children. Like yeah. she was preaching to children with the kind of moral high ground stuff as well. Like she's not. Whereas I suppose with J.K. Rowling, you get the sense that she wants to create a magic world for children. And even, you know, the character of Luna was um, created or inspired by Ivana the girl who actually played her in the film when J.K. Oh, yeah. Rowling met her in real life hmm. kind of created the character around her. She wanted to create spaces for children in in this magical world. That's really n- like nice and expansionist kind of. It's like, yeah. it's like showing the kids possibilities and like in a blight and stuff is almost the opposite where it's like it's more of a closed sense. It's more like no, these are your options. Yeah, these are your yeah, yeah. It's something you like, can picture on the street like handing out pamphlets being like this is how you <laughs> behave. Like yeah, read yeah, this yeah. book. How to yeah. be good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no doubt. It really feel like and that's kind of a pity as well, because I think it kind of the stories like they were there were good stories there, but just the kind of the finger wagging and the like, you know, don't deviate, don't do anything yeah. bad. It just it comes through so much as well in the work. There we go. Do you have anything else? No, just, I was going to. The food thing is really interesting. Oh, yeah, go, go, yeah go on. Go for I was it. kind of fascinated, like just about how often food comes up as like a reward or as like the only good thing in kind of people's or the bright spot in people's mm. lives. But then if someone eats too much then they're seen as like a glutton or like or they get fat god forbid or whatever it is but like the food is always at the center of it and obviously part of that is you know she's writing some books during world war ii some just after it and mm. um, so rationing would have been kind of obviously at the the forefront of people's mm. minds so it makes sense for that audience but even reading it now it's just funny because the food they talk about is it's not very it's not appetizing at all like there's one bit yeah. where they're talking about um what is it they're like biscuits and sweets and big fruit cake and four tins of peaches and nestle's milk and strings of sausages and you're reading it going, is this supposed to provoke kind of, am I supposed to want all these things? And <laughs> yeah. yeah, they sound yeah. so strange and so odd, mm. but you kind of get the sense of like, oh, hang on, these kids don't have a lot. Like they, they are posh, but they may not have a lot if these are the things mm. that were seen as luxuries back then. It really yeah. dates it and also kind of takes you out of the story of it as well. Mm. It's kind of wild how like, you know, food is the thing that kind of for me makes it feel old fashioned the most yeah. out of everything else. Yeah. You know, and the finger wagging, but yeah, the yeah. food. I, I wondered did they update the food they probably didn't god imagine if it was they? like a bag of meanies instead of it would probably really impact the tone of it as well if they changed the food because there's yeah. so, such a I suppose variety of foods available it would be hard to pinpoint what are mm. the fancy children's foods right. over the, the ginger beer fancy. could still yeah. be there that's probably yeah. the one thing yeah. that would survive but then like they'd have like tins of sardines and stuff which probably would not make it to today yeah like there's no planet where why those no place where those are like fancy and yeah like I couldn't a imagine a child getting excited about fruitcake now either yeah no. yeah or like condensed milk or something yeah I mean no there we go cool thank you so much thanks guys so that much was fun. really good um, yeah give definitely. us plug some stuff for us uh, yeah if anybody wants to listen to our uh, start our podcast on Stardust um, which is out now wherever you get your podcasts um, that would be great 
I'm not great at plugging things. Obviously. Where can we find you on Twitter and stuff? Oh yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Christine Bowen and on Instagram as well with that. And I don't tweet that often really anymore. I'm kind of mm. like, yeah, I find Twitter just not, <laughs> this isn't revelatory, but just Twitter not being a great space. I've been trying to use it a bit less over the past uh, year or so. But I still, having said that, I do tweet a few times a day, but less than I used to. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's more that I check it less, I think. Yeah. And I yeah. tweet less. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I, so tweet me and ask me for thoughts on Twitter because I have a lot of them. Really. <laughs> As you can tell. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Cassie, what you got? Um, I am here at Tall Tales Podcasts and also a host of The Creep Dive. I think it's at Creep Dive at that Creep it's Dive. Dive Creep. At Dive Creep on, on Twitter, Twitter. At the Creep Dive on Instagram. The Creep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Uh, I am Alan underscore McGuire. And Juvenalia is just, if you search for Juvenalia on stuff, you'll find it. It has different names depending on what was available. Um, thank you, Christine. Thank you, Cassie, for stepping in because Sarah was sick. Um, hello, Sarah. We'll see you soon. Um, it's, it, when this goes out, we really hope you're better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's weeks. Really <laughs> uh, thank you, Dee McDonald, for our artwork. Um, we have a Patreon where you can get bonus episodes and such. And I think that's everything, probably. We'll see you next time. Well, I'll I won't. Sarah will be back. Yeah, but let's... You'll hear me in the background laughing or... Jumping in. Jumping so, in every now Yeah, and so we'll all go have some National of the Ginger Beer now. Yes. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>